My sermon today is blame game, and let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Lord, as we come to study your word, to grow and to discover things, maybe surprising things, we ask that you would open our minds, open our hearts, open our understandings to see what you are telling us in your written word, that you would be honored and glorified, and above all, that your people would be built up and helped in our lives and service here. We ask it in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Page one, the dark unknown. He first, he first emerges, emerges from Babylon and Persia, appearing in the Bible during the Jewish exile and afterwards, namely Satan, Lucifer, the devil. Now, everybody knows the name, but most folks know nothing about him. In the Middle Ages, he was pictured as a dark-skinned man with pointed ears, sharp fingernails, women's breasts, and horses' hoofs. Don't ask me why. That's just what they did. In Milton's great Paradise Lost, he was the proud and vain rebel for whom it was better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. In the rural south, he was Tom Scratch, a scruffy, hard-drinking, homeless vagabond with a knack for getting simple people in trouble. He's the tempter, the great deceiver, who bargains for the souls of men and never forgets who owes him. But there is no unified picture of the devil, who he is and what he does or even why. You know, a little man in red tights with claws and forked tails who sits on your shoulder and whispers temptations in your ear. Chocolate. You know. A tall, shadowy figure whose dark, wispy presence inspires terror and dread. Um, you know, most of the images of the devil in popular fiction are merely concretions of people's darkest fears, sort of in humanoid shape and, and an evil will. You know, oddly, even among serious Satanists, there is no agreement as to who he is, why he does whatever it is he does, and whether he actually even exists, or if he's merely maybe a symbol for the full self-actualization of the human potential. Boy, doesn't that sound like noble. Huh. And then among evangelical Christians, there tends to be a very firm belief in the existence of a personal devil who embodies pure evil and is bent on the spiritual, emotional, ideological, and or political enslavement of humanity, you know, sort of an anti-God. But how and why? To what end? And the opinions then fall all over the map. Page two, 
the prosecution does not rest. So let's look at the beginning of the book of Job in the Old Testament, chapter 1. Now, first of all, in the first few verses there, we're introduced to the person of Job, who, we're told, was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. We're going to hear that exact same phrase verbatim several times as you read this passage. He is prospered, we're told, with seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 1,000 oxen. Now, those numbers are not literal. They're not to be taken literally because you may have noticed it's all thousands and threes and sevens. I don't know why there's seven sons and 7,000 sheep and three daughters and 3,000 camels. I'm not going to try and draw connections there. Um, daughters would resent me for it, I'm sure. Maybe the sons, too. But keeping in mind, threes and sevens are numbers of divinity and holiness in Jewish numerology. Tens are numbers of completion, because that's all your fingers. It's complete. And 1,000, which is 10 times 10 times 10, is obviously a number of total completeness. So what they're try it's trying to tell us is in his utter and total righteousness before God, Job is utterly and totally blessed. He is enjoying an idyllic, godly life. Until verse 6. One day you'd follow with me. One day, the heavenly beings, literally that's the sons of God. I'll talk, mention that in a moment. They come to, came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to the Satan, where have you come from? And the Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to the Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then the Satan answered the Lord, huh, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to the Satan, very well, all that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, right there. Let me explain. In the ancient world, royal courts held regular convocations to receive their orders, coordinate their efforts, and adjudicate disputes. 
staff, consider it sort of a staff meeting and court day all in one, you know. And so God holds his staff meeting and all the sons of God attend. Now, the term sons of God is not to be understood literally either. But it means his highest ranking ministers and right hand men. It it's literally means his favored ones in this sense. And there is among them the Satan. Now I use the definite article on purpose just like the Hebrew uses the definite article, ha-satan. Satan is never a personal name. It is an office. It is a title. It is a job. It means accuser and is very specifically the accuser. The prosecuting attorney who leads the investigation, who indicts the subject, who brings the accused before the court, and conducts the prosecution on behalf of the government. He pleads, basically he pleads the case against sinners. Yes, this is the devil, and that is the devil's job. Now he's been on a, where has he been? He's been on a fishing expedition, you know, trolling for wrongdoers. He goes to and fro, meaning from east to west. He goes up and down, meaning from north to south, considering human beings. That's why God calls particular attention to Job. Uh, have you considered him? Because you see, he does not fit the usual mold. Job actually is upright and honors God in everything. He is a rare beast indeed. And it becomes obvious, though, that the accuser has indeed considered Job and has drawn his own conclusions. Job is only righteous and faithful because of what he can get out of God. If he loses everything, it'll become evident that even his faith is a self-serving sham. You know, that... I guess, I guess the devil's just looking on the bright side. Um, this is one of the problems that... Uh, <clears throat> have you ever known anyone who's constantly imputing the worst possible motives to other people? Well, they're just doing that because of blah, blah, blah. They're just saying that because of blah, blah, blah. Well, that's all right. That's, don't worry about it. That's just the spirit of the accuser. And they may not know it, but that's who they learned it from. So, at any rate, calamities befall Job. Rustlers steal his oxen and his donkeys and murder his wranglers. The vast flocks of sheep are destroyed by lightning. 
The Babylonians raid the camels and execute his camel drivers. His children perish in a whirlwind, all, all in a single day, a bad day. But Job, we're told, still honors God. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we're told for good measure, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. At the next court day, the sons of God again gathered a report. That's in chapter 2. We'll start at verse 1. One day, the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to the Satan, Where have you come from? And the Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Then the Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin, all that people have they'll give to save their lives. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to the Satan, very well, he's in your power, only spare his life. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. Here, that first scene is mostly repeated verbatim in the Hebrew as the prosecuting attorney again appears before the judge to get additional authorization for his ongoing investigation. Now he is allowed to add grievous physical suffering to the economic and emotional trauma that Job has already endured. <clears throat> Even Job's wife cannot bear to see his suffering and implores him to just get it over with. But Job is adamant. <clears throat> Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? He'll not give in to self-pity, nor charge God with being unjust. You see, what's going on here is that the prosecuting attorney is out to build his case against the suspect and is, is not above setting him up for what we would call a sting operation. That is, put him in a situation where if he might be inclined to sin, he will. In legal terms, this is what they call entrapment. It is in this sense 
that the accuser also appears as the tempter. Others, he might try to lure into committing high crimes of murder, you know, like Cain, or adultery, like David, or rape, like Amnon, theft, shoplifting, alcoholism, addictions, even magic will work just as well if that's your thing. When you are being tempted, when you are being tempted, whenever you're being tempted, it's just the accuser setting you up to take you down. He'll he'll go to and fro weighing your weakest points, And then he will offer what for you is irresistible bait or apply withering pressure until you buckle. He is unscrupulously just. You hear me? Unscrupulously just. The accuser is determined by hook or by crook to find enough evidence to prosecute and convict you in the ultimate court of law. That's what he does. Page three, still at it. This goes back all the way to the very beginning. You know, Genesis 1, or actually Genesis 2 and 3. The serpent tempting those two newfangled human beings in the Garden of Eden. And he's usually identified as the accuser. They've been given only one rule. This says a lot about human nature. They've been given one rule, only one rule. And he, of course, has to test it. He's obsessed, obsessed with proving how unreliable, how weak, how tainted these weird animal-spirit hybrids are. So he can say, see God, one rule, and they can't even keep that. Ha! As at the beginning of history, so also at the end. The seer, John, author of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, describes how, he says, that ancient serpent who is called the the devil and the Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, makes another appearance at the last days, which, by the way, means now. First... He wants to destroy the people of God before the Messiah can be born. And then failing in that, he wages war in heaven and is cast down by Michael and the armies of God. And a great voice from heaven rejoices. This is in Revelation 12 and verse 10 starting. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. 
But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. <clears throat> so he's, in, he's indicted humans before the divine tribunal, listing their grave sins with corroborating evidence until he is sickened by these humans and their lurid taste for sin, sickened to the point of plotting not only a just condemnation, but the termination of their entire existence, and he revolts. You know, lure them into the gravest idolatry that is worshiping him instead of the God who created them, and surely that will work their annihilation. You can see how he gets there. He was there to tempt Jesus, to draw him away from that whole ridiculous scheme of human redemption by vicarious atonement. You know, with Jesus, the devil's thinking is, well, let him be a prophet. Let him be a priest. Let him be, even be a king, if he will. But whatever Jesus does, make sure he is pursuing human goals by human ends. You see, because in his eyes, these human vermin are unredeemable. Of course, you and I know that Jesus would not be deterred and went to the cross instead. It worked. The accuser hasn't figured out yet why. In the meantime, he still goes to and fro and up and down upon the earth. That's why we're warned in 1 Peter chapter 5, the verses 8 and 9, like a roaring lion, your adversary the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Now, we're familiar with this, so he's, oh, well, yeah, that's Bible. I know that verse. But when you really stop and look at it, the warning is not what we expect. That's not really quite what we expect to hear. We expect to hear, resist him, for you know that your brothers and sisters are undergoing the same kinds of temptation. Isn't that about what you'd really expect? It's not what it says. It's not temptation. It is suffering. You see, as with Job, the case of Job, the accuser intends to turn aside the faithful by afflicting your flesh, by causing pain and fear, physical and emotional pain and fear, persuading you that this interminable misery is all the future holds can ever hold. However, when you embrace that suffering, 
embrace the persecution, and even rejoice in the privilege of sharing in the sufferings of Jesus, well then, as happened with Job, the accuser loses his case. Page four, justice above everything. In his role as the investigator, accuser, and prosecutor of human sin in all of its sordid variety, the Satan appears as a, really as a champion of justice. Undoubtedly, he would completely agree with the Apostle Paul that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. Even when, if he were to run into a righteous man like Job, he's going to assume it's got to be fake. He's seen it all the time. And he's out to prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Namely, if he had a motto, it would be presumed guilty until proven guilty. As sinners, uh, well, he's out to prove, let me just say, he's out to prove it. And to be honest, that's not really very hard to do. People are so inclined to selfishness, to peevishness, to acquisitiveness, and every other kind of ness. It doesn't take much to motivate any of us to our worst excesses. It's just how we are, and he knows that and exploits that. But it's not enough to prove that you and I are guilty by God's standards. He would also agree with Paul that the wages of sin is death. That is, as sinners before God, we deserve not only condemnation, we deserve the death verdict. And I'm sure he would think, preferably, eternal death. <clears throat> you know, God, just shovel this whole human experiment into the fire for good. <laughs> be done with it. Life, life should be for those who deserve it. And none of these human vermin deserve it. You see, the devil is usually assumed to be the ultimate embodiment of evil. But that's the devil of folk tales and ghost stories. The devil of the Bible is an arm of the court, a dedicated, if often unscrupulous, pursuer of justice. He is out to expose the evildoers. And, as he presumes, all human beings are evildoers. But the Bible does describe the Satan rebelling and vaunting himself against God. 
You see, he too has a besetting sin, but one that's not immediately apparent to himself. It is pride. The proud rarely see their pride as a problem. And if they did, they'd be proud of it. Okay. Now, it's not really that much pride in his beauty and his power because one who has stood in the very presence of God would know he could never really outshine the glory of God or outrival the power of God. No, you notice in the Bible, when he argues with God, God God twice, God himself twice acknowledges that Job really is blameless and upright. But the accuser refuses to accept what the judge has decreed concerning this lowly human. You see, the problem here is contempt of court. The accuser dismisses the judgment of God and in his own overweening pride believes he is more just than God. Do you see that? Make sure it's not just me. Make no mistake, God is just. He who is perfectly righteous, perfectly fair and impartial, perfectly virtuous in and of himself can only be perfectly just. But there is another side to God's justice that the accuser does not and can never understand. God is also and equally perfectly forgiving perfectly merciful, perfectly compassionate. God extends grace. Grace. And grace is a divine mystery that the devil cannot grasp. He just can't get it. To him, God's grace appears to ignore, even repudiate the austere and stern demands of justice. Therefore, grace must be repugnant to him. He thinks God must be going soft on sin because he certainly appears soft on sinners. Of course, God is not soft on sin. When we offend against God, offend against our fellows, offend against both friend and enemy alike, it is what it is. And it demands the full weight of justice and prosecution to the full extent. God does not ignore our sin. God does not excuse our sin. But in His mercy... He has made a way to address your sin problem in order to restore his broken creation. 
Evil and guilt deserve punishment, yes. And justice demands it, yes. But instead of simply consigning all of us to the fires of hell, God became a human being who lived a fully human yet fully faithful and upright life and then who willingly gave himself over to rejection, abandonment, torture, and death. Not as the just punishment for his own sin, for he had none, but to fulfill the demands of justice on behalf of others like you. The accuser has been carefully mounting his case against you in order to secure your condemnation. He's got banker's boxes full of the stuff. He's ready to traipse out in court against you. And then here comes the Son of God who accepts for himself your execution. The verdict is felled, the sentence fulfilled, and the sinner goes free. Amen. You see, the intense suffering and the cross of Jesus does not excuse your sin. Rather, it reveals just how utterly grievous its consequences are. And at the same time, it shows how great the mercy, the forgiveness, the love, and the grace of God. Page 5, In Whose Footsteps? The accuser has been thrown down, but he continues to build his case against humanity. You know, that's against you. God, however, offers a fountain of mercy, a spring of grace to erase all of your failings and guilt, no matter how crushing the weight. So, you come to Christ Jesus and find forgiveness and a whole new life that you never thought could still be possible. And if the devil fumes, well, let him fume. Further, you are who God says you are. You are not who the accuser says you are. Those people who picked at you when and told you you wouldn't amount to anything that, that, that was mentioned earlier today. That's not who you are. They don't know who you are. Maybe that's who you were, but in Christ, you're a new creation. You're a new person from the inside out. And God says you are forgiven. He says you are a royal priest. He says you are strong. He says you are righteous, not in your own strength or righteousness, but in that of Christ. 
you no longer have to hear and believe what the accuser says about you. All that matters is who you are and who you are becoming in Christ. Now, also, as new people in Christ, you and I are called to be people of justice and people of grace. Let me illustrate this with a text that's rarely read these days. It's very avoided. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13 to 15. This particular passage is addressed to widows in the church who at that point they could register for financial support and in return would devote their lives to service and acts of charity. At least that was the idea. But they were having some trouble with some of the young widows who lacked the emotional and spiritual maturity and the dedication. And among the problems they were facing there is this. Let's read. Besides that, they learned to be idle, gadding about from house to house. And they are not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not say. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, so as to give the adversary no occasion to revile us. For some, this is the important part for us, for some have already turned away to follow the Satan. Now this, this passage is addressed to the young women, but to be frank, old men can be gossips and busybodies as much as anybody else. Do I hear an amen? Mostly women's voices. <laughs> Just saying. So we are all, really, ultimately, we're all urged here to attend to the needs of, of family and household. You know, get a life. Using our time gainfully and wisely and to avoid the trap of the adversary, namely the accuser. Now, how have these particular widows followed in his footsteps? Well, we're told, as gossips and busybodies saying what they should not say. That is, you and I are called to watch our words, that we do not imitate the accuser, constantly complaining and listing what we think to be the sins of others, not presuming we know their secret motives and imputing to them the worst things that we could imagine. Mothers, do not constantly pick at the faults of your children. Husbands, do not collect grievances against your wives. Citizens, do not incessantly catalog the faults of your officials you'll have opportunity for that at the ballot box. When you construct your life around the faults of others, 
you are turning away to follow the Satan. That's what he's saying here. Accuse, accuse, accuse. Tell me, who benefits from that blame game? I only know of one. If you are saved by grace, then become people of grace. Do you hear me? People of grace. We're told we conquer the accuser by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. The blood of the Lamb who takes away our sins, however grievous and deserving of punishment, and by our testimony of to what He has done for us and who we are in Him now. We win when we take redeeming grace to heart and then center our speech on the mercies of Christ. Here, you see, there, there can and should be honesty and justice, but equally mercy and grace. So when people out in the world see you as you are going to and fro and up and down upon the earth, when they see you, do they see the grace of Christ? When they hear you, do they hear the mercy of God? Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, not in the footsteps of the accuser. And we don't want to live our lives in the footsteps of the accuser, in the shadow of the accuser. We want to live in the light of the Son of God who has redeemed us and taken our sin in our place and its punishment, its consequences, so we can be acquitted and free through him. Lord, do a work in our heart by the power of your Holy Spirit that we can both bask in the glory of the mercy of Christ and extend it generously to others in the name of our God, who is all at once both fully just and fully merciful who is completely fair and yet completely gracious. Amen.